I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Small electronic components enable us to have powerful portable devices. Isabel Yang, chief technology officer at Advanced Energy Industries, explained what microelectronics is. Isabel has over 20 years of industry experience in semiconductor research. We talked about what transistors are, their characteristics, and their role in electronics. Prior to being a CTO at Advanced Energy Industries, Isabel worked at IBM Research for 19 years. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank Blind for being a sponsor. Navigating the workplace can be a challenge. Blind is an anonymous app for tech workers where they can talk about career development, corporate policies, workplace harassment, and more. Go to teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees. That's teamblind.com. Thank you. Isabel Yang, Chief Technology Officer at Advanced Energy Industries, is joining us today. Isabel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. You have a background in microelectronics and hardware. I want to begin the conversation by talking about this. Can you first explain what microelectronics encompasses? Yeah, microelectronics is actually a pretty broad area, and it encompasses essentially the basic microchips that goes into, you know, everything that we use today, your cell phone, your computer, your iPad, and the design of those chips, the packaging of those chips, and ultimately, you know, when they get solder onto a circuit board. <laughs> the board itself is also microelectronics. So it's pretty broad and encompassing. And the area that I specialize in, where is my knowledge base, is semiconductors, which is really the fabrication and design of those microelectronic chips. What are examples of these microelectronic components? Well, a microprocessor. So a microprocessor essentially is pervasive nowadays, right? It's in everything we use, all electronics, portable electronics, servers, and also along with microprocessors are uh, memory storage, right? That you see, for example, a solid state memory storage that you uh, see comprised of NAND memory and then DRAM. Those are all part of microelectronics components. You were at IBM Research for about 19 years, starting in 1998 at the Semiconductor Research Center. And when I was researching for this, I was reading about transistors and how this is a fundamental building block of modern electronics. During your time at IBM, one project you worked on was achieving the highest performance transistors devices in technology. Can you explain, for those that don't know, what a transistor is and what it's been able to, to achieve? So a transistor, if you can think of it, the most broadly applied usage is think of it in the digital electronics as a switch, right? A switch that you can turn on and off. So when the switch is in an on state, it determines in your computer whether it's storing a one or a zero. And so essentially is the foundation of computing modern computing, which is the tra single transistor unit. 
And then if you put some of them together, they could also use for uh, memory, which is uh, static RAM memory, which you also see in modern computer systems. And in many cases, in analog applications, the transistor, in which case it will be a bipolar transistor, will be used as an amplifier, right? You put a little bit of a current of voltage on and then come out a big signal. So those are sort of the core foundational uses of a transistor, either as a switch, as a storage device, or as an amplifier. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. When would it be useful to have the amplifier property in what context? Well, so a lot of it is in uh, analog control systems, right? For example, let's say right now, you know, in our business in uh, advanced industries, you want to control a voltage signal, right? And amplify that. Let's say you have a signal coming from the wall outlet of a certain frequency and a certain voltage level, right? But to deliver that power to, let's say, a plasma chamber or a large manufacturing tool, you're going to use a lot more power. So you have to amplify that signal, let's say, from 120 volts, right? You have to amplify that to you know, maybe 400 volts, right? So there is a way to take that signal and then increase it to the level that you want. And you know, in some sense, that's sort of the most the simplest way to explain the amplification properties of a semiconductor transistor. They're also actually nowadays, if you think about your headphones, <laughs> there are amplifiers in there as well, right? It takes, for example, the sound that you hear, right, it, and translate it into electrical signal. And then if you want to increase the volume, right, it will amplify that small electrical signal into a bigger electrical signal and then hence a louder sound, larger volume. So amplifiers are used a lot in analog applications versus the digital applications. I see. And for the property of the switch, can you expand a little bit more on its usefulness of being able to turn something on and off and what this representation means? So, for example, at the very basic level, you know, in the modern computing, everything is stored as a zero or one, right? And so you will have, let's say, an array of, you know, SRAM, which is the memory devices, right? And then each device node is either a zero or one, right? And let's say you want to write to that memory device and change the content that's stored into something else. So the switch would turn on, in some cases, uh, turn on the switch and then open it from a zero and turn it into a one. That's a write process, right? And then in other cases, it will turn a zero, a one into a zero, right? And so in that case, essentially the switch allows the current to go to the storage element and change the state from a one to a zero, a zero to one. And when you turn it off, you know, the storage of the element of the information gets undisturbed, right? It stays in in place from the last time you changed it. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. The other thing I'm curious of is cheaper and smaller electronics can be attributed to the development of the transistor, which is what we've been talking about. What properties particularly of this make it cheaper to have electronics? What made this a reality? Oh, there's so many technology advances, right? So at the transistor level, right? So the smaller the transistor is, if you think of it, the faster it is in terms of switching, which is the faster the switch can be modulated. And in order to you know, increase the speed of switching, the transistor size, the physical size of it itself has to be smaller. So in order to achieve that, now in semiconductor processing, there is a, a process step called lithography 
photography. You can almost think of that as printing, right? Like when you print something, you basically transfer an image from one piece of glass, let's say, to another piece. In this case, you know, the transfer of the image, which is what the designers, the circuit designers have designed for the transistor, it transferred that onto a piece of silicon, which is a semiconductor. And uh, the ability to make that image smaller and smaller is driven by advances in lithography, uh, which is primarily the light source that's being used to make these uh, images smaller. Now, the light source being used is usually the smaller the wavelength, you know, the optical wavelength or ultraviolet wavelength, the smaller the wavelength, the smaller you can print those images. So a lot of the advances actually came from lithography that enables printing of these small transistors. You just mentioned transistors are made of semiconductor material, in this case, silicon. What are some of the properties of semiconductors? So semiconductors, the reason why they're called semi versus conductors is that you can actually modulate the electrical properties to make it either conducting or insulating, which is non-conducting, right? So for example, a copper is a conductor. It conducts electricity all the time, right? For semiconductors, that's actually not the case. The semiconductor itself, in its own state, is non-conducting, right? So only when they get excited, meaning that you have to put in some material to make it not 100% pure uh, semiconductor, but kind of, I would say, you almost think of them as impurities, right? And then those impurities actually can make the semiconductor conducting if you are able to apply certain voltage condition to the semiconductor. This is one of those things that I think is a little bit harder to explain, but you can think of it as, you know, the semiconductor, you have electrons that is at a low energy state that usually are dormant. In other words, they don't go anywhere. They don't conduct. And when you put these impurities in, they actually make the electrons excited to a higher energy state. So when they get into the higher energy state, you can actually make them conducting uh, if you apply a voltage to it. So that's the best way to explain semiconductors, which is normally they're not conducting, but you can make them conducting by changing the properties of the semiconductor. In the context of electronics, why is this property useful? Oh, this directly speaks to, let me just relate back to the transistor. The semiconducting properties allows you to make the switch, right? Because when you apply the voltage, if you apply the voltage and you wanted to make it conducting, the semiconductor, you know, the ability to be in a non-conducting and conducting state enables you to do that, right? You apply the voltage and then it becomes conducting. So the switch is on, right? And then when you disconnect the voltage or set it to zero, the switch turns off and the semiconductor becomes non-conducting. I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk about advanced energy industries, which is where you're currently the CTO. When I was researching for this, I saw that it's looking at how power is being used and managing the world's leading semiconductor and industrial manufacturers through their products. Can you explain in a bit more detail what Advanced Energy Industries is doing? Okay, so Advanced Energy core uh, strength and competency is in highly precisioned power delivery, right? So what does that mean? You know, in the context of semiconductor manufacturing, so you can imagine in a factory, there are like a lot of these really, really big, expensive tools, right? That carries the, that essentially execute on the manufacturing process of creating these chips, right? But for, on these tools, you can easily find anywhere from 
you know, one to 10 of advanced energy power supplies. So what these power supplies do is that they take the power from the wall outlet, you know, or from the grid, and then they tune the power to whatever the manufacturing process needs are, right? So the power generator could be, you know, a radio frequency generator power, 400 watts, right? So we can deliver that. And it's very, very finely tuned because it is very well controlled so that there's no, you know, negative events such as, you know, arcing, which is causing like, a, uh, if you think about it, like a lightning bulb <laughs> in the manufacturing tool. Those are all, you know, essentially uh, negative events that you don't want to occur. So we have the ability to, to control that and actually diminish those and deliver the power that the manufacturing tools need. And, you know, in addition to power, advanced energy also does a lot of metrology work uh, in terms of measuring temperature in the chambers at a fine level, non-contact, you know, using pyrometers or uh, fiber optic temperature sensors. So it's sort of a holistic approach to managing highly positioned power supplies and the metrology that goes with it. And that's what advanced energy core competencies are in terms of uh, servicing, if you will, the semiconductor manufacturing industry. The other thing that I saw is that it works in the area of plasma thin film industries. Can you explain what this means? So plasma thin films, essentially what it is, is that if you take out your phone, right, and you look at the front and the back on the glass, it's imperceptible to you, but there's usually layers of coating on it. You know, some coating could be to prevent smudges, right? Some coating may be for um, protection, right, to make the case a little bit more resilient and harder. So how does these coatings get on the phones? Essentially, what it is, is that in the industrial space, industrial coating space, they have these very large deposition chambers, And in the deposition chambers, they create plasma, and the plasma is comprised of essentially ionized gas molecules. And so these molecules, in turn, then deposit a layer of material. You know, that material could be a conductor or a non-conducting, right? Maybe it's another layer of a glass coating, right, that they can put on, or they could put on anti-reflective coating, right? That's another way to think about it. So the industrial coating, you know, this is one example of industrial coating, right? You could go to a factory, let's say in China, and they will have thousands of these little phone cases, you know, set up, and they turn on the plasma generator, and the plasma gets created, and they deposit the coating on these cases. You know, the other industrial case of uh, glass coating is if you look at your windows, nowadays our windows are all tinted, right? Especially in uh, very warm areas. So in the factory where these glasses are produced, you know, they have even bigger chambers that essentially does the coating on the glass. And those are usually done through uh, plasma coating. And that's another example of industrial coating. At what scale are we operating in industrial coating in terms of the dimensions of the material? For example, is it micrometers or nanometers? Yeah, I think the film that's deposited usually is very thin, anywhere from, you know, you can think about it in the range of a few hundred nanometers to a few micrometers. Imperceptible to us, right? Like, you know, if you think about your hair follicle, which is a few micrometers, it's probably, that's even probably on the thick side, but that's the range that they're operating. I see. And as a CTO at Advanced Energy, what does part of your job consist of? There are quite a few things, right? First is that essentially look at where else 
we can apply our technology, you know, in addition to semiconductors and the industrial coatings, because from a power conversion perspective, if you think about it, what do you do every day that does not involve power? <laughs> Almost everything you touch involves power, right? That requires power. And as the, you know, as we move into the future, the sources of energy generation and power conversion could be very different, right? We there may be um, you know some areas, uh, remote areas where you don't have the grid anymore. You just have a microgrid with local green energy being generated. Uh, in which case, you know, the power conversion would have to be from DC to DC directly. Um, so there are some innovations there, and so those are sort of examples I'm looking at. What is the future of power conversion? And how could we leverage our core competencies to be the innovators in those space? That's number one. And uh, number two is that, you know, to lay out essentially the roadmap, you know, a very robust roadmap for our company moving forward as we go in, uh, as we, you know, still live on and leverage our core competencies and precision power. But we're also, you know, expanding into uh, metrology such as, uh, you know, distributed fiber optic sensors and uh, uh, pyrometry, remote, you know, uh, infrared sensing. So those are areas we also need to figure out, you know, what are some of the right innovations and a roadmap we should create to, you know, enhance our business and, and grow our business. And the third is that engaging with the community, right? The community involves the local ecosystem of uh, startups. You know, we're involved with Innosphere, which is a local startup uh, incubator. And, you know, we engage with them. We uh, share our uh, expertise. We share our vision. And in turn, they also uh, pitch to us and, you know, get us into on the ground, if you will, on what are some of the new innovations are and what the innovators are working on as the next generation technologies. And then, of course, we're very interested in talent, right? Every technology company, highest priority is make sure you attract the right talent. So we are involved with the local universities, you know, Colorado State and uh, Colorado University, Front Range. These are all the, you know, we're trying to have outreach to get them to know us better and for us to know them better. And in return, you know, is uh, our give back to the community by sponsoring students, sponsoring programs. And in return, we uh, hopefully will get good, good students to fill our talent pipeline. So those are sort of some of the more immediate priorities on my list in the next uh, 12 months or so. In terms of the part where you said you are determining where else the technology can be applied, how do you begin to approach this big scope task? That's such a great question. And because, you know, in one sense, you could almost avoid the ocean, right? So my approach to that is really understand our core competencies. And when I say that, I mean, what do you major in? What do you minor in? Right. It's like in college. Right. So I think our major core competencies is still, you know, very skilled in power conversion of any kind of power. Right. Into well-controlled, reliable delivery of power. Actually, in most cases that we like to work in is a critical applications. Right. So, for example, one critical application is in medical equipment. Right. So if somebody is performing an ultrasound on you, the last thing you need is to have a power spike in the ultrasound where it could burn the patient. Right. So well-controlled power conversion in highly regulated and uh, essentially industries that requires high reliability. Right. And critical controls. 
So when I look at it, I actually look at industries first, which industry requires you know, high reliability and critical management of uh, power. I just mentioned medical is one area, which I think is really crucial to be able to do the work we do right in order to deliver. Other areas, you know, you can think about industries uh, such as in the information technology space, you know, uh, data centers, right? I mean, all data centers have backups, but just think about it. If there's a huge spike or there's a huge power failure into a data center, you know, just think of it. We're on the internet all the time. (laughs) You know, you probably won't be able to access what you need to access. So information technology and communications, I think, I think uh, telecommunications is pretty critical in terms of power. And then, you know, the other area that would be a good example is probably, you know, uh, military applications, right? In the field, military applications where failure is not an option. So I look at industries first and then I say, okay, what are some of the problems that industries are facing that are very difficult to attack? And what are our core competencies that we actually can actually take on those problems and solve those problems and deliver value ultimately to the end user um, and the customer? So that's my overall approach. It's more of an outside-in look in combination with inside-out, you know, the overlap of industry challenges and problems to our core competencies. That's really interesting because I think it helps keep the decision-making grounded because like you're saying, you're leveraging the core competencies and just looking out at the other industries and how you can apply your strengths to them and how they can benefit potentially. Right. Because I think what we do is I love the science and academic piece of it, of uh, solving a science problem. But I also love the aspect of actually solving a problem in society that people can actually derive value from it. Right. I think the intersection of those two is sort of the sweet spot. An important component that I think of a leadership position or pretty much at any level in your career, actually, is to be able to take risks and manage that. One thing that I saw on your LinkedIn page is that you take this idea of calculated risk. Can you explain this a bit more? Yeah, I think, you know, from a calculated risk perspective, you know, every time we, and I'm going to talk this from the uh, perspective and angle of innovation, right? As a CTO or even for engineer working, you know, in a company, what does that mean? So when I say calculated risk, there will be technology pursuits that if you look out, let's say five years down the road, even beyond five years, that you are not 100% sure that there will be a, a market for it, uh, B, that you will be actually be able to solve the problem. But, you know, what you see that uh, where the industry may be going or, you know, where you uh, engage with, you know, the thought leaders in, in academia and in industry, even though nobody has the answer to the problem, but it is a big enough problem that needs to be solved and that there may or may not be a monetization opportunity, but still needs to be solved. I think those are the risks, decisions that one has to make as you sort of lay out a roadmap of big bets you want to make, right? Every technology company has to think about the future. Not When I say the future, I don't mean next year. I mean, what does the company look at three years down the road, five years, why five plus five to 10 years, right? And what are some of the bets we want to place from a technology perspective in concert with understanding the market, not knowing 100% that that things are going to work out, but you have to play some bets. And when I say calculated risks, I really mean the decision-making process of 
how you arrive at the bets you're going to make for the future. And I like how this also resonates at a personal level. You're talking about it in the context of a tech company and innovation, but also as an individual, you can apply a similar framework to this, thinking about three or five years down the road. What bets are you going to do today? That's absolutely right. I think from a, a personal growth perspective, you know, from all of us, I think that's also a good, um, you know, a good way to apply this. Just because I think what makes us grow is to take on new challenges, right? Sometimes the challenges that you take on could be extremely beneficial down the road, and sometimes they're not, and sometimes they're just purely a failure, but then you learn from it. The point is that if you don't take those risks, you will never know <laughs> where you're gonna, whether you're going to benefit or not, right? Or are you going to learn anything or not? Exactly. Well, Isabel, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was a great conversation and uh, best of luck to your podcast. This should be very exciting. Take care. Thanks to Blind for being a new sponsor of the show. Go to teamblind.com. That's teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees from your company. Check it out.